Now it's time to make a move Perched on a pinnacle I see The shadows of what was and what will be Good morning. You are tuned to KBOO Portland, and it's just about a minute before 11 o'clock. KBOO keeps you informed, and you can get involved to become a member. Go to kboo.fm and click on Donate. Coming up on the Boo at 1130, it's Voices for the Animals, a discussion with squirrel rehabilitator Jackie Marsden. And stay tuned next for Making Contact. We'll talk with fantastic Negrito and learn how he's using his artistic platform to advocate for social justice. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is also available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Board meetings will be conducted at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, unless otherwise noted. The KBU Board of Directors meets the fourth Monday of the month, starting at 6 p.m. Please call 503-231-8032 to verify if a meeting is being held. You're listening to Fantastic Negrito, recorded live in concert at Berkeley's UC Theater. In the last three years, the Oakland-based Black Roots revivalist has gone from busking at bus stops to winning a Grammy. He's done this by creating a unique sound, employing melodic hooks, primal blues rock chords, clever lyricism, a killer falsetto, and in-your-face social commentary. I'm Eric Arnold, and today on Making Contact, we'll learn about Fantastic Negrito's journey, his creative process, and how he's utilized his artistic platform to advocate for social justice. We begin in an East Oakland neighborhood called Funktown, where Negrito's story began. What we're seeing here, this is where, this was ground zero of a young, fantastic Negrito. When I, first time that I, I moved here was in 1980, and this was the park on Park Boulevard near East 18th. Everyone 
hung out here, all the kids, man, with basketball games and um, all the pretty girls with their braids and beads. It's just, in my memory, it was just like such a beautiful, colorful, uh, black experience. And um, yeah, the, it was so different, Oakland, you know what I mean? It was like the city where it had its own language. It's ha it had such a rich history of music and art. Man, you could just feel it. I ran away. I'm going to just be real. I don't want any kid out there to run away. But I, at 12, I came. I remember my daddy got some house up here. Man, I came to this park. Literally, I didn't ever come back home again. It's a true story. My dad died. i never seen him again. I ended up in foster care. But that was the magnetism. You could feel it. You could reach out of the air and eat it. That's what you, as a 12-year-old kid, I'd never, coming from New England, I'd never experienced anything so powerful. When Negrito's father died, he ran away from home. Well, I ran away from home because I tasted these streets out here in Oakland and it was beautiful to me and it felt like a family. I felt disillusioned and um, like an outsider in my family because, you know, my parents were very religious and I, I just wasn't feeling that. But I, I found a group of kids who are still, to this day, my best friends. And Blackball Universe and Fantastic Negrito, we all did this together. Um, I met these kids here. And uh, it felt like family to me. And I know a lot of kids grow up having problems. And some of them, it's gangs they join. But I joined a beautiful brotherhood of really intelligent, progressive 11, 12-year-olds. <laughs> I mean, to be real. I mean, you know, it was 1980. It was in the air. 1980 was also the dawn of a new political era. With the election of Ronald Reagan, the optimism of the post-civil rights era began to fade, replaced by trickle-down economics, mass incarcerations, and a so-called war on drugs, all of which majorly impacted the black community. As Gil Scott Heron put it, it was winter in America. I remember specifically, and still to this day, this guy's my best friend. We. We talked, man, this Reagan guy, like, that seems like fake. Bro, don't that seem like acting to you? Like, man, we, I remember us having the, con we still talk about it to this day. Remember, we kind of knew. We couldn't articulate, but we're like, man, this, this dude seems like a big hustler, like a big faker. So, yeah, but the winter really came a couple years later when crack hit. That was the winter for us because there was still hope. And, um, you know, people weren't, everybody, there wasn't a lot of people on crack and walk. The neighborhoods weren't decimated. I remember this was a community center. And I don't remember the guy's name, but they'd come and organize the basketball games. And there was hope. Being an outsider in a new city helped shape Negrito's character. From Oakland, he learned the value of struggle and hustle. I was like an alien. I was an alien. Here I am, a young black kid coming from rural Massachusetts, not Boston, western Massachusetts where my dad had a restaurant and I was, man, I was squared in a box. <laughs> I come down here and there like, oh, where you, where you from? From Massachusetts, they're like, Massachusetts, nigga, where you from? <laughs> I remember, you know, kids would just uh, surround me so I'd have to fight someone every day. Being bullied by other kids only made Negrito more determined. They would make fun of my clothes because I was always kind of an eccentric dresser. Being from a family of uh, 14 kids, having seven brothers, you got hand-me-downs at Goodwill. I never had a new 
pair of clothing in my life. So this park had so many experiences. I remember one day they teased me, teased me, and I was like, okay, I'm going to show them. I'm going to show these suckers that I got some flavor. Negrito started going to a thrift store, which to this day is where he finds most of his outfits. Dressed Natalie in golf slacks, blazer, and ascot, it's clear why he calls himself a recovering narcissist. He sings about that in his song, About a Bird. There's a bird at my window. She watches it all. She sells what I'm doing. She's hoping I fall. There's a bird in the bush. And there's one in my hand. Sweet, empty pop lyrics lay waste to her head. But I won't at all But I can't pay Ooh, take a chance on me Ooh, take a chance on me I tried to hide in the hole, but there's a hole in my head. So I broke clean her feathers, now she's sick in my bed. There's a bird at my funeral, oh, she's singing out loud. How the tears on her pillow won't heal the scars. So the game to me, I live dangerous. As a runaway in and out of foster homes, Negrito's teenage years were all about hustling as a means of survival. As fate would have it, his journey into manhood coincided with the emergence of crack cocaine. I was back and forth in a lot of foster homes and I was a runaway. I was living on the streets. I basically left home when I was 12 and I never came back and I, I used to run with a bunch of kids and I'd sleep in their older brother's car. On, and this was on 9th Street in Berkeley on the waterfront in Berkeley. I was just getting around. I mean, it was the Bay Area. You didn't, wasn't, man. You're in Berkeley, you're in Oakland. We're in Richmond. We had East Mount Mall. We had Hilltop Mall. We got around, jump on the 43, jump on the 72, be on the bus all day. But um, what happened, I never forget it, man. It was like life changed overnight. One day, my best friend, he came to me. I think he had $3,000. And he, he pulled me to the side. I hadn't seen him in like a week. He's like, hey man. He said, man, they got this new thing. They call it crack. He's like, man, they're going crazy for it. I'll never forget that. I'm like, they're going crazy. In the mid 80s, the allure of fast money ensnared millions of urban youth, including Negrito. Though he resisted initially, Negrito eventually became a drug dealer, which elevated his status from riding on public transit to driving luxury automobiles. But then I remember cooking up my first batch of it on 32nd and San Pablo, which is on the cover of The Last Days of Oakland. Because it took me a couple of years because my dad was very conscious and I thought, this is bad. I was like, this is going to be like genocide. And I was, I was saying that and I was like, man, I'll just push weed. But man, I kept seeing how much money my peers were making and eventually, a couple of years later, I started moving it myself. But it really changed 
overnight, I remember the, there was one father like in the in the area. He was like respectable, and then he became a crackhead. And like I said, all the people that we were supposed to look up to, the conscious generation, it decimated them. Because I think they just felt hopeless. And I think that as I look back on it now, that crack was an escape. But it made all of us young kids rich. We became very rich. And it, it was funny because it was almost like, okay, now you get to live the American dream, young black men. You have cars, you can have women, you can have apartments, houses. And so that's what we were, that's what we were doing. That's what the values taught in this country was that we weren't really about community, they were about material things. The dark side of that is that many of my peers, you know, they, they've, they've, they've fallen. And that ideology gave license to a lot of violence. And I, I lost my 14-year-old brother. And uh, I lost my 16-year-old cousin. I lost my best friend, another guy growing up with all these people. And there's many others, but these are the people close to me. They all fell because of this idea of like gangsterism and materialism and all the isms that can kill you. And I feel like I was complicit in a part of that. Eventually, karma came a knocking, or rather, breaking and entering. Man, we got in there and there was three people with, with uh, ski masks. Not ski masks, stockings. And, you know, they put us on the ground, and they put like nine millimeter to, to my head, and I was like, this is when I thought I was going to die. This incident was a game changer for him. He left Oakland and moved to L.A. to pursue a music career. I'll never forget the Chevron, because I, I started, I busked out there about three years ago just to just catch the vibe, feel the vibration, like this was my taking off point. So I went to L.A., and I, I didn't come back till four years later until I had a record deal, the biggest record deal in the, in the music industry at that time with a million-dollar advance. And I felt like I had done something. Came home a champion. And then my music career ended right after that. Negrito sees his evolution in distinct stages, like chapters of a book. Well, I look at my creative life, or maybe even my life, in three parts. There was the hustling, scrappy kid from the Bay Area that taught himself to play music and had to leave because of certain circumstances. Went to L.A., felt like I really conquered, came back with this massive record deal. That was phase one. But within that, the context of all that happening, I lost it all because I didn't know how to function in the environment of corporate music. I didn't understand it. I was coming from the Bay Area. It just seemed like it was so pure to me. I didn't understand the commodification of, of the music, so I failed in that environment. So that was phase one. Part two came when driving down the street in Los Angeles, Melrose Avenue. There was... Wasn't, well, I crossed Melrose, I forgot the Highland, and bam, car hits me, i never seen it coming, I end up in a coma for three weeks, which takes away my playing hand completely. But I survived that, I woke up, I rehabbed for about a year, and phase two began where I was like, look, I'm independent now, and I could, had all these ideas of these incarnations of who I was, like, Projects like Chocolate Butterfly and me and this Japanese guy, Blood Sugar X, and I opened up uh, illegal nightclubs where I had a venue 
where I could perform my music and other artists come together in South Central LA I'm 41st in Maine and we had a platform it was beautiful man it was eclectic it was amazing nude body painting man hot tub on the roof live music that started at midnight closed at 6am no permits open bar all night we were completely out of our mind but it was be- there was a beauty and it was a true form of being an artist and that was phase two Phase three came was when I thought, you know what, I quit this thing. It's like I was turning 40, I was like, I want to do something else. I've been an artist, I've been a narcissist, I've been a uh, street hustler. Let me do something else, I want to be a daddy. Somebody let me get you pregnant. So I I did the let me get you pregnant campaign. (laughs) And uh, found someone. And... uh, that was amazing. I had a, long story short, had a little baby boy. Thought, this is great. And I was back in the Bay Area, back at home where I belong. A chance experience with his young son led him to an epiphany, which rekindled his creative side. So one day, I didn't know the third phase was gonna about to begin. I didn't know. I'm sitting at home with my son. He's about two. Maybe a little less than that because he wasn't that verbal. He looked kind of sad, like he's in a bad mood. I'm like, why are you in a bad mood? You're a baby, you're in a crib. Everybody does everything for you if he's in a bad mood. So at that point, I had sold all my instruments. I hadn't played music years. I was just being a farmer. Had chickens too, actually. Um, I looked down underneath the orange love seat in that room and there was an old guitar. And I remember that guitar. It's like, that guitar was terrible and nobody wanted to buy it because I sold everything when I'm done I'm done people like don't you play I'm like man I don't even think about music I don't have nothing to say but I had the idea let me just pick this up I picked it up I remember I tuned it a little bit and he's looking at me and I strummed the G major that G major chord on the guitar changed my life boom he goes from this frown and the room explodes and only a way that a baby can smile because they smile with everything because they haven't been beat up like us. We're like, <laughs> kind of smile. He smiled with everything he had. And it put, gave me chills. It made me a little apprehensive. I didn't know what to do. Like, what do you, I just played a G major. What did, why are you so happy? But then I thought, wow, music. In this very moment, I was like, this kid is telling me that this is the language of humanity. In this one moment, with that smile, he spoke a volume of books to me and changed my life because I didn't I didn't become Fantastic Negrito right then but I thought you know what I'm going to start playing some music for him but I'm like what do I play? Drawing inspiration from old blues artists the character of Fantastic Negrito began to take shape. My own secret to myself is I listened to really old black root stuff Delta stuff with no drums I'm talking about Oh, uh, Skip James. He's like, who's Skip James? I said, I'm talking about Charlie Patton, man. I'm talking about the old stuff. That's what moves me. So one day I wrote this song. Not his turn today. Oh, not his turn today. Not his turn today. Not his turn today. Oh, not his turn today. Not his turn today.
Just came like the spirit just hit me like my ancestors reached down to touch me I could feel the power of this black roots music and it was telling me man this is what you got to do you got to tell people your story you have a story so I just went out to the streets started playing started playing these songs you know I only had a few chords down on the guitar I was never a guitar player hit the streets playing it and People seem to, it seemed to resonate with just people getting off BART. People at Colonial Donuts, 3 a.m. in the morning. People over on the 15th Street Galleries. Man, wherever you go in Oakland, you see me with a guitar and I'm playing from my heart all night. One day I got back to my art gallery and I just thought, boom, Fantastic Negrito. It hit me. And I, I just started calling myself Fantastic Negrito. I made some stickers. I'm Fantastic Negrito. I tell people there's only one Fantastic Negrito in the world. I Googled it and it, it was me. And uh, so then I decided to put our EP out. And I had, not his turn today. Oh, not his turn today. That was, a, that was my sh I put it out. I didn't, I just got on Twitter. I didn't have no followers. Hey, not his turn today. Fantastic Negrito. People are like, what? Like, kind of, that's kind of fly. That's kind of dope. And then I wrote a song called Honest Man. And then that's when everything changed for me. I was like, ladies, you, you heard about him. He's like Sasquatch, but you ain't never seen him. You ain't never met him. It's an honest man, but here he is. I'm in love again. But no, this time it's not with my hand. Wandering, murdering. Every time that I get the chance. I'm a, I'm a human, baby, don't you know it? But remember first, I'm a man You painted pictures for me That I refuse to understand, baby Girl, I want everything you got, sugar For no reason Yesterday, it felt so good Oh, today, feels so bad The Looking for my fix again. On the streets of West Oakland, we pass by an old building where Esther's orbit room used to be. It's the last visible reminder of the legendary 7th Street Strip, the center of a thriving black music scene which was decimated by urban renewal. Uh, this is, uh, we're in West Oakland there. 7th Street, and this is Esther's Orbit Room. Now, I think like the 40s, 50s, man, this was, uh, West Oakland was a mecca, was a haven for uh, blues, jazz, soul music. So there's so many roots right here in Oakland of an amazing music scene that happened that really laid the groundwork for what was to come. But Oakland had a, had a musical legacy from the beginning. West Oakland was thriving. All, anybody who was anybody, you came through the Barry, you played at Esther's Orbit Room. And I uh, lived out here in like 88, when I was doing a lot of bad things. So it, it, it was a turning point in my life where I was 
at a crossroads. Like, which way are you going to go? You're going to be in these streets selling, uh, you know, grinding and selling this dope, or are you going to be a musician? And I chose to be a musician. Thank God I did. Down the street, we arrive at an overgrown lot covered in graffiti. It's where Negrito shot the video for his latest single, Pushback. As he explains, the song is about resistance and resilience in challenging times. The media, the power structure, what we're confronted with every day is a formidable opponent. And uh, as an artist, like we have a platform to um, push back to combat these negative, oppressive, evil forces. Like I said in the song, stress, anxiety, fear. I mean, these are the things we're pushing back against because they're extremely prominent and they're a weapon that is used to divide people. Negrito's album, The Last Days of Oakland, won a Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Blues Album. The album was inspired by a city undergoing an identity crisis as affordable housing, communities of color, and cultural landmarks disappear, replaced by what he calls evil geniuses in fancy condos. My mother didn't like the name of that album. She's like, oh my God, it's so morbid. No, it's... But I thought the opposite. I thought, you know what? You have to accept that something is gone in order to start over and start something new. It's done. That Oakland was amazing. My God, what it produced was unmatched. It was an incredible time. But wanting that to come back is only a source of uh, and a road to misery and to uh, unhappiness. So those days are gone. We have an opportunity. To, we live in the new Oakland. And we can be a bridge as people that are from the old Oakland. And we can be reminded to let's respect those roots. Juxtaposing new and old is one of Negrito's specialties. On his haunting and poignant remake of Leadbelly's Indie Pines, he projects a Black Lives Matter sensibility onto a classic blues template. In the Pines, to me, that story, it had been told before, but the melody was amazing and the vibration of that song was amazing, but I wanted to write about what I knew. What I knew was growing up, there was women that had to bury their kids because of gun violence. My mama had to bury my 14-year-old brother. I remember experiencing that. I remember washing his blood off of the floor with my hands. I remember my auntie, when my 16-year-old cousin was murdered, these women, man, where is their voice? Where is their metal? Sitting in the room where Negrita recorded his last album, I ask him what his creative process will be for the next one. Well, I think 
the most important thing is just getting in the zone, getting in that comfortable space, or actually that uncomfortable space, which is actually a better space to be in, and where you're just uh, you're really in tuned with that frequency that uh, is kind of intangible and hard to put into words, but that is what produces great uh, art when you're in tune with the frequency. Negrito's artistic evolution both parallels and contrasts Oakland's changing dynamic. He's reinvented himself by tapping into the core essence of the blues, but he's evolved that sound with lyrics that relate directly to the times we are living in. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. You can learn more about Fantastic Negrito and find links to his music at our website, radioproject.org. You can also check out past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast, and make a difference by supporting our work. If today's show raised questions for you, share the show with a friend. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is making underscore contact. Special thanks to Fantastic Negrito and the entire Black Ball Universe crew. Today's show was produced by Eric Arnold, Anita Johnson, and Marie the Making Contact team also includes Lisa Rudman, RJ Lozada, Monica Lopez, Vera Tykoska, and Sabine Blazon. I'm Eric Arnold. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. is a proud co-sponsor of the film screening of Living While Dying on Tuesday, November 28th, 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. Everything you wanted to know about conscious dying but were afraid to ask, Living While Dying is a documentary film exploring how different people are preparing for death and reevaluating their relationship to dying. Again, that's Living While Dying on Tuesday, November 28th, 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. You're listening to Voices for the Animals on your community radio, KBOO Portland. The more compassion we have towards animals, the more compassion we're going to have towards other people. If you can value them all, you, you really value yourself as well.